Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Claire Rousey, who describes herself as a person who performs and records, currently living in San Antonio, Texas. And her performances and recordings explore queerness, human relationships and self-perception through the use of physical objects and their potential sounds. I always find that my mind goes in several different directions at once when I listen to Claire's music. There's stuff there that reminds me of the nature of memory and the way in which that we recollect experiences in these fluid collages of different events and circumstances. The way that she wields intimacy and proximity within sound as well. Sounds are brought forward right to the front in a way that can make them feel almost too close, almost too familiar to the point of being strange. The way that she juxtaposes that foreground with a background that can sometimes feel very alienating or completely wrap itself around the listener as well. Um, There's so much to take in with Claire's music and I was so delighted to be able to speak to her about her important records. Now, unfortunately, there was a technical glitch about half hour into our recording where my laptop crashed. I lost the audio for the first half an hour, which included us talking about a few of Claire's recent releases and also her first crucial listening pick as well. So we picked it back up. Unfortunately, we've lost the part about Claire's own music, uh, but we did manage to speak about all three of her important records once the recording gear was back on again. As you can hear, it did frazzle my brain with how to speak about the records in terms of the ordering. So I refer to the first one we're talking about as the second and then the final one. And then the f- it didn't make any sense to do that. But that was how my scrambled mind decided to handle that. But I implore you for now to go and check out Claire's music. I mean, she's got a band camp, her own band camp, clairerousey.bandcamp.com. But you can also go to clairerousey.com for information on her recent and upcoming releases. So the two that we actually spoke about in the lost introduction were a heavenly touch on already dead tapes and records. And also I'll give you all of my love on Anahuac editions as well. She's also got a new one-sided 12 inch coming up on Whited Sepulchre as well, which based on what I've heard sounds utterly brilliant as well. So like I say, employ you to check out Claire's music for sure and head to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on Claire's picks and her music as well. Cool. All right. Enjoy this episode of the show. Thank you for supporting the show as always. Claire Rousey on Crucial Listening. Claire, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hey, how's it going? All good. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, if you'd like to tell me a bit about your second important record, uh, that would be great. Uh, give me the name of it and a little bit about why it's important to you as well. 
Definitely. So this one, I think I'm going to go with, hmm. I'll go with Olivia Block's Karen, because I think that one's going to be fun to talk about. Cool. Okay. So why is this one important to you then? Uh, it was the first time I ever heard anything from Olivia Block. I was a little bit late to the game on that one. <laughs> I love the concept behind it. It was also the first time I heard kind of, I'm trying to think, like a concept uh, attached to this kind of like sound collage recording with like some live instrumentation on it. But I really like the kind of the idea and the way it was arranged. And I, I just had never heard anything like that before. Like I said, I was really late to the late to the game when it came out. Um, I think in 2014, it was the first time I ever heard it and or heard anything from Olivia. And yeah, it just totally blew me away. Yeah, I've read a bit about the concept, but um, be wicked if you could fill me in. Because from what I read, it sounds like that there's a link to. Irving Goffman's work, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And I see these references to the first side being like the backstage side, the kind of chaotic aspect of the self. And then the latter piece being the sort of on stage, like outer presentation, something right. along those lines. Definitely. Yeah. So that's pretty much, that's the the core of it. And that's kind of what drew me into it. Um, mm. And I, I really... I really enjoyed that um, she did this and the way that she spaced out the sides. Mm. I think it would have been interesting for her to do like the, you know, the outer self, which is the B side, uh, what that represents. And I think it would have been interesting for her to do that as like the A side uh, and then the B side being the backstage. But she actually did it the other way around where um, the kind of like outer representation of self or like the performance aspect which is called opening night that's the b side mm -hmm. and the backstage part is actually the um the a side which i think was a really a really interesting choice and i i think either way it could have been like an obvious selection or choice made uh with what what side is which but i think the way that this works is is really interesting because you get to hear kind of the rehearsals and the tuning of the piece like leading up to it almost like all of the internal thoughts and all of the inner monologue that goes into presenting yourself in front of people mm. um and that like self-conscious aspect of it i don't know if that was uh an intended part of it but i definitely i got a sense of like you know like inner worry or self-consciousness about your presentation uh, i also like that the opening night piece which is like the outer presentation is shorter than the uh the a side which is <laughs> yeah. which is also typically how i work <laughs> internally <laughs> so i think i resonated with that too like i spend way more way more time worrying about myself and then the presentation part comes out and it's shorter right or you know i do a lot of work for something that doesn't last that long right <laughs> Yeah, because um, I'd never thought about that with this one, but I guess um, one interpretation of that sequencing is there's sort of like an energy flow taking place, like it starts yeah. in this uh, very disparate, sprawling space, and then it gets sent through a filter and is refined into something resembling shape, right? I mean, I wonder what, what would have been the implication if it like been the other way around, like I 
do you think that would have had like a completely different effect as a uh, in terms of how those two pieces of music were were received I don't think so. Uh-huh. I'm not of the mind that sequencing makes or breaks a record. I know a lot of people are of that opinion. Mm. Um, I think, you know, people that think sequencing is like the one thing that's going to make or break a record are probably people that are like alone in their mother's basement on <laughs> radio music. <laughs> uh, yeah. And as much as I really love, uh, you know, meme culture and all that kind of stuff, I would distance myself from, you know, the incel community. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think, I think it would have had a different effect, but I don't think it would have changed my love for it. I mean, certainly I think the, 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 the final moments of the record or the final like two minutes feel like such a wonderful way to wrap the whole thing up as well. Like, I I don't know if you know what that is. It sounds like, um, What's that film called? In Magnolia, there's like a point where loads of frogs rain down right at the end of the film. It sounded to me oh, like yes, a rain yes. of frogs. But I, what is that sound? Like that kind of pattering, big, thick sort of rubbery rain that's going on? I honestly don't know. I probably could <laughs> ask her at this point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, <laughs> I have no idea. I, I do know the first time I heard that, though, it was jarring. Yeah. Um, and... Not even in the same way that, like, the like the first half of the record has a lot of really harsh moments. Mm. Like, a lot of, like, really, um, really intense, like, distorted. Uh, it sounds like a lot of the, whatever the audio is, is, like, clipping and kind of interacting with each other in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, this is, has a, same, a similar effect, but it's not, it's not that kind of, like, noisy, uh, shocking kind of thing. It's, it's jarring in a way that's kind of beautiful, I guess yeah it's it's really different yeah yeah it's yeah it's it's really tactile like um i almost found it quite disconcerting the longer it went on but um is there um anything about her like the 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 way she approaches her sound design say on that first side in particular that speaks to you as well i i I thought it was wonderful the way that she arranged everything like her use of proximity with sound seemed really strong like the, the the fact that you had a lot of sounds incredibly close up and very vivid, but then a lot of indistinct spaces as well felt felt wonderful. But is there um, a particular um, anything particular about our approach that appealed to you? Uh, I really liked. I mean, that is a huge part of why I like that first track so much. Mm. Um, and out of the two sides, I think the A side is actually my favorite. Uh, not to like you know compare them against each other, like two separate pieces of work, but. Um, I really like, yeah, the use of proximity and then also the use of space, Mm. um, which is interesting because it's a pretty, uh, cluttered first half of a record. Like there's a lot going on at a lot of different points in time. Um, but I think using space, not just in terms of like, you know, sound and silence, but space between, I guess, like the... I guess the juxtaposition of like the proximity situation. Totally. So you hear something really close and you hear something that seems like kind of more ambient or like recorded from further away at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you can feel that space between those two things. Um, and you can almost measure it in your mind, especially because the recording quality on like most of this is like so incredible. Right. Um, like so much of it just sounds insanely like well mixed and well recorded 
Yeah, yeah, it's that sense of like space, space uh, evoking dimension, just like um, almost like a sound sort of mapping the room in which you're in at that time, just the way that it ricochets around. Yeah, this was wonderful. I mean, is this taking you further into Olivia Block's work as well? Yeah, it was the first time I heard her heard her work at all. And, you know, ever since then, I've kept up with every release. You know, I, I buy every LP that comes out because I know it'll be good. And I like her and she's really fun. Um, <laughs> I really like her, her micro cassette um, podcast that she does. A bunch of found micro cassettes and just digitizes all of the uh, material on those. And I think that is like a fun activity for her not necessarily like a recording project or anything and i but i think the intent that goes into that is very present on a lot of her work too just kind of like presenting material that exists elsewhere um and being not like a i don't really like the word curator um <laughs> in any <laughs> sense of that um but I, I do like that she takes you know found sound and also sources things herself and then just kind of presents it to the listener either within her work or this podcast so is that is that um, micro cassettes that she's made herself or stuff that she's just picked up i think it's all the stuff she's picked up because a lot of the recordings sound yeah they're pretty old recordings and um, they're really personal too wow like a lot of monologues and and you know phone recordings or something like that like messages and stuff from when micro cassettes were the uh, medium that people were documenting on. Right, yeah. <laughs> which is very short-lived. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm going to dive into that. That sounds like my kind of thing. It's fantastic. When you think of listening to to Karen as well, it's been like quite a few years since you discovered this record. Like, what are the memories that you have of first listening to Karen? Like, where where were you listening to it? And what's the context around you discovering this album? So, actually, this record and the last record that I'll talk about, uh, both of these things are records that I heard uh, at the recommendation, also kind of without having a choice, um, with my friend Mari, who plays under the name Maurice. She's like an electronic artist from Austin, composer and songwriter. We toured a lot together in 2012, 2013, 2014. And she played me a ton of her favorite records. And this one uh, is one that we were listening to in the car. Wow. When we were touring, we were driving, yeah, driving around the West Coast. And she put it on for me. And it was, it was incredible. It was such a, like a life-changing experience. So driving around, yeah, in like California, looking over the ocean and the, the mountains, listening to this record, it was incredible. I don't usually associate these kind of albums with like car driving records, but that sounds like a wicked experience. It was pretty interesting. It was also really crazy because I couldn't tell what was the car and the road and what was on the recording. Um, and we played our show that night and then we went back to the hotel we were staying at. And I I immediately, you know, downloaded it on my computer and I bought it and the digital copy and I listened to it again that evening. So I listened to this record twice in one day between playing my own my own performance. Uh, and it, it really stuck with me. Wow. And do you get many experiences like that where a record just hits you first time incredibly hard? Not no, not usually. Hmm. Um, if something is that I'm like that hits me that hard, it's usually a pop record. It's not usually uh, 
whatever you want to call this experimental music or whatever right um yeah those things usually don't hit as hard Hmm. i don't really like i mean i enjoy listening to a lot of you know more out there experimental music but it's not something i go to for like this completely you like rearranging of my my mind or emotions it's usually it's usually something i do not as research but it's something I would find more interesting than emotionally, you know, moving. Mm. Is there a recent pop record that's done that for you as well? Um, yeah, a couple of them. <laughs> uh, it's just like a I I love pop music. Could anybody who doesn't like pop music is lying to themselves. <laughs> uh, no, there's a couple. Um, the new Ian Dior. Uh, album that came out called I'm Gone. It came out a couple days ago. That one really did it to me. Um, that's kind of like a trap R&B thing. As well as the 2019 record from Tammy T called oh. High Pitched and Moist. That one's a, that one's a gnarly record. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, nice. But yeah, both pop records. Cool. Well, let's go to your final record now, Claire. Um, and as mentioned, we'll then loop back round to the one that we've already talked about. Um, but yeah, your your final album, if you could tell me the name of it and a bit about why it's important to you as well. Yeah. So the last one that I'm going to talk about, uh, I also heard on tour with my friend Mari. And it's Among the Leaves by Sun Kill Moon. Yeah. So why did this one stick with you? Um, well, I was introduced to it around the same time as Olivia's album, uh, but this one, very different, uh, kind of like singer-songwriter, snarky, whatever. <laughs> and I listened to, you know, some of um, Mark's work before, and obviously I was a fan of uh, Red House Painters, um, his other band, or his old band, I guess. Um, but there's something about the production on this record that really, really stuck with me. Uh, as well as the uh, really sarcastic, you know, snarky l- lyrics on it, I guess. And it's, I don't know, it's its a really good record. And it's something that I never, um, I never get tired of, I guess. I revisit it pretty frequently. And I think there's a, a large range of emotions on it. And it's also a very good driving record, especially now that I know all the words to every song. And there's like a, like no a way. ton of tracks. <laughs> Wow, yeah, it's a talky record. Um, you mentioned the production really speaks to you. What is it about the production that you think um, really connects? Um, a lot of the Sun Kill Moon records have like some pretty lo-fi vocals on them. This one's pretty hi-fi, and there's so many vocal tracks on all of the songs. Mm. And the way that they blend together, like you would think for like the first 10 seconds of a verse that he's just doubling himself. But then he changes like one note or like two notes on one of the vocal tracks. And it doesn't sound good all the time. Like it's not, it's not like he's doing these like 
third and fifth, like, these, like, really pretty harmonies. Sometimes he just, like, chooses a note. Um, and it's really interesting, and I really like that. And I also think this was... This is probably the last record um, of the Sun Kill Moon records that I really, really felt this way about. Mm. The other ones that have come out have, you know, my my attention has kind of dwindled in the uh, world of Mark Kozlek, but I think I think this is like the last thing that he did that I really, really, really loved. Yeah, they, I mean, he's gone on a really interesting trajectory. Um, I first heard him through April. Uh, his mm-hmm. Sunko Moon record and I loved that record and then I, I think I tuned out until you know I kind of checked in around Benji but then saw mm-hmm. him play live at Primavera Sound Festival in Barcelona and was like oh is this where we're at now like he that that style of vocals that he's now developed where it's this total stream of incredibly candid experiences and as you say like a lot of snark has really risen through his discography as time's gone on i mean yeah and i think this record is kind of the middle point of that where it's like he still has the sentimental lyrics but he does have some of the snark Um, right and i think you know where he's at now it's like all right i don't know i don't i don't love when people glorify um I guess, just like such, you know, mediocre experiences and try to make them into this grand statement. Mm. I think you can do better. <laughs> right, right. Because like, yeah. he has done so much better. Um, and I, I mean, part of what I like about him too is that he's a fucking asshole. And I love that. I love that so much. Really? Oh yeah, I think it's fantastic. I love artists who are really mean. Um, <laughs> Because I think it's something that I've always wanted to be, but I could never do it. <laughs> so when I see somebody doing it, I'm like, oh, wow, like, I wish I wish I was able to do that. Just because it's a totally different way of approaching music and, and work that I, I have no ability to, you know, do 100 percent. I think mm. I like I like being kind of nice. At least. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the thing that I find with this record. I found this record really difficult one to listen to because he is an asshole and it's so strange to kind of consider for me as like how aware are you of um how you are portraying yourself through your own words here because it's all very matter of fact but there's it's all like event after event it's not like i mean i don't know I, i i listened through it once so maybe this is off the mark but it it didn't feel like there's loads of like self reflection necessarily it was like this happened and this happened you kind of build a picture of what he's like through that i found him really difficult company uh especially because the record's like 70 minutes like it's a, a long <laughs> it's a marathon <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah so the kind of personality that he conjures throughout this record as you mentioned you're like a fan of these asshole characters do you feel they're more compelled towards someone like that in terms of like listening to their record rather than repelled which i feel like is is where i end up i think is that i i didn't want to spend any more time in his company i think i don't know i i don't think i prefer records from people 
like that have that kind of personality all the time. And I don't think I prefer that from a lot of artists. Mm. Um, I think, I think I just like it when Mark does it. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I don't really like what he's doing now. I think he's gotten more and more unbearable, but I think he's totally, you know, like, cognizant of like what he's you know kind of building uh-huh. and how he's being viewed and i think he loves it like he gets off on it right and and i think that is an interesting thing to watch and this record is like i think the tipping point before he goes full you know um just completely full of himself like he, it's the tipping point right before all the records that kind of start being this like really long monologue like recounting the day kind of thing yeah uh yeah and i think this record has just enough sentiment and like honesty in it that i still like it even if the honesty is kind of snarky and self-serving or like self-glorifying i also i also really like people who do music that um like lyrical music where people are um i guess like kind of uh like bragging about themselves because a lot of hip-hop artists do it and it doesn't come across the same way right um people are like i got money i got hoes i got all this shit and it's like when mark does it he's like i'm so smart and like you'll never write a good song you're not a real artist but i am (laughs) and i got and it's all these things it's like well like it's kind of the same thing but the way that you're doing it is so mean right yeah (laughs) yeah but it's kind of the same thing as you know like talking about like got racks on racks and he's like well i got like you know a ton of pages of really sentimental lyrics right like yeah (laughs) what he values is different but i think the the delivery is a little bit too similar to passover that's it i think it's the context isn't it it just makes it sound inappropriate that he should be so gloating and up himself over like a quite intricate finger pluck guitar um yeah it's really interesting <laughs> and i think you know i think if he was doing it with a different kind of musical aesthetic it would pro- it would probably be bad music uh, <laughs> if he was trying to write like a trap record but um i wouldn't put it past him no. uh, but i i think i think it would be totally different yeah because mm. there's this this fragility to the kind of uh, or like the guitar, the finger picked guitar is like really sentimental. And I think his artistic history also speaks towards that. And I think people, no matter how mean he gets, people still remember his, like his old records where he's being pretty sincere. Yeah, cause it, that's what it strikes me as weird. It's like with April, he's talking about kind of the same experiences, but right. in this sort of scenic a circumventory way uh where you're like actually not much has, has changed necessarily in terms of the content but just the delivery gives it an entirely different flavor it's yeah it's really interesting also as well what i kind of like about this record which i i did think was kind of cool i mean i saw he talked about the fact that he he wanted those experiences and he did get them where he was in the studio recording this and the engineers were looking at him during some songs being like what the fuck are you doing um yeah (laughs) with some of the songs that he was recording like track number eight and stuff like that 
um <laughs> which yeah. isn't you know and I, I love the fact that you know that's not track number eight on the record you've got some songs which have a title which kind of allude to a lyric in the song but it's not quite right um <laughs> yes. something that feels kind of slapdash about it right yeah he i think i just don't think he, he cares anymore and that <laughs> record's pretty pretty old compared to like the amount of records he's put out since sure but yeah, I don't know. I think at a certain point in his career, he just realized people will listen to him, and he has a platform, and he's just going to say what he wants to say. Right. Which is really interesting, because I think if if he's at the point he is now, I wonder where he'll be in 10 years. Oh, my God. Because I, I, I wonder how much funding his records will have in 10 years. But <laughs> <laughs> You do see, and I don't know whether this really means anything at all, but it always strikes me as you see the Wikipedia pages for each record dwindle in size. Uh, I know. As they progress, I've always been really interested in that. What that kind of, I don't know if it suggests anything, but it kind of, on a broad brush sense, almost sometimes acts like a barometer for like public approval on a record or how far it reached, you know? Oh, 100%. I think it's the same thing with people who release experimental music in like the world that like we exist in it's like you see somebody who puts out a really good record in 2018 and then every month since 2018 they drop a digital only 20 minute track on their band camp it's like th those reviews and like the attention those are going to get are going to dwindle in size and probably the quality too i don't mm. think it's different i think it's pretty similar um it's really interesting too. not saying that people can't be prolific for, you know, every month for years at a time. But I do think public, like public opinion and, and people's attention is pretty similar in, in most worlds. Yeah, totally. There's a certain point where I, I guess people are just like, I, I'm going to listen to a different voice now if that's okay, you know? Um. Right, yeah. Especially <laughs> especially the Sun Cold Moon stuff now that's just like 90-minute monologue records. Oh. Come on. And it's the same thing with experimental music. Somebody's like, I want you to listen to this like drone for 40 minutes. And they're like, I have a new drone every month. Right. Like, well, I, yeah. I know, I know somebody else who also does that, and I'm going to check them out instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, do you have uh, on this Sunkill Moon record like a favorite track? Uh, probably the title track or the track called The Winery. Um, I think the uh, Among the Leaves track on there is probably my favorite. There's a mm. couple lines in there that like every single time I listen to it, it just hits like strikes this chord in me that it's like this emotional kind of like physical reaction to it that is just um i think what was what was the lyric i think the first time he said it is like uh do i tell her i don't care if she sleeps downstairs mm. and i think that really hits me uh and then he doesn't alter like a kind of alters that line a little bit later and each time he sings that it really really hits me and i think for some reason that <laughs> out of the whole record I kind of that's like the thing that keeps coming back to me also to be fair I listen to this record pretty frequently but I never make it past track 10 because the, the <laughs> second half of the record is like total bullshit <laughs> yeah uh, I mean there's these two UK blues tracks as well which uh, by that point I feel like he's kind of dragging himself through it um, yeah, yeah. I'm you like if you're not going to turn up UK like... blues <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah it's pretty it's pretty rough <laughs> towards the end of it it's like 
He's like really trying to make himself last, and he just like can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's strange. I think it's this, it's an interesting way to have a record where it's kind of like um, it's like a you, you run it into the ground, uh, and the point at the ends is kind of like I can't be fucked anymore, and I haven't sort of for the past five tracks. But yeah. this is the point where I'm not picking up my guitar for another one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, I think I like that, though. Yeah. Um, I think it's an interesting way to end a record, especially with so many people, especially that do this really, like, um, like very instrumental-based pop or, like, rock, folk, whatever music. Mm. I think instead of having this really anthemic last track that builds up and there's this huge crescendo, um, <laughs> like, the record kind of builds into this, like, final devastating track, which I see a lot. Yeah. He's just like, he's like, well, you know what? I'll peak at track like 10 and I'll keep going for more and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and just <laughs> dreadful. Um, and the listener is just going to be like dying for the record to be over yeah. by the end of it. And I think that's a really interesting way to approach it too. Mm. Um, not saying it's a great way to approach it. And I definitely think the amount of uh, physical waste that producing, you know, two, like a double LP of this record, I think there are a lot more things that that, <laughs> that material could have gone to besides the <laughs> the second half of the Sun Kill Moon double LP, but right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it came out on his label. I guess that gives him more license to be frivolous, but <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. <laughs> we should talk about as well the first record that we did talk about which is cruelly cut away i i, I won't ask you to repeat everything that we talked about like we spoke about it for quite a bit but um if you could briefly touch on that last important record that would be great yeah definitely i this last one little peeps come over when you're sober part one um i think this is probably my favorite record out of these three um not for any reason that can compare like these three records to each other they're very different but i think this one just really hit me in, in like an emotional way uh, and i'm very sentimental about it and i'm very sentimental about the artist um that I don't I don't mind talking about it again <laughs> if we had to if we had to like recount one of these I think this would be the one for sure because uh, Little Peep is like Little Peep is is really one of the artists that mean a lot to me even though I think at this point the goth boy click crew that he is part of is kind of you know it's old news people don't really care about it um, and I think that it's a little bit uncool to like it at this point but his his whole approach kind of was that it's it's an amazing record i think this is the first thing i heard of his and he'd been putting out music prior to this for a long time uh but it was the first thing i heard and i think it's just it's a really great record and introduction to this kind of community of people that are mashing up like pop music and pop punk music and emo rock kind of stuff from the 90s and 2000s 
with like trap music and hip hop. Um, and I think he's definitely one of the more approachable pop centric kind of like performers. Like he definitely leans into a vocal hook, sings like Tom DeLonge, as you <laughs> said earlier. Like it's, it's very accessible to people that would listen to pop punk music. Mm. And I think I really like that. Um, but yeah, no, the, it's a fantastic record. And I think that the, you know, the amount of emotion that goes into making something like this, even if it seems so surface level, because it's, you know, pop, pop punk guitar, um, like playing like power chords over trap beats. And he's talking about like finally making money or like being heartbroken, like these things that are that seem very surface level when you talk about lyrical content. Mm there's this kind of like aching quality to his voice and his vocal performance that is like very attractive i think right it draws you in yeah i think um because we talked as well about the documentary about him everybody's everything which was amazing i and and made me dive right back into this record again having listened to it i think one of the things that, again, we talked about before but was was the very strong kind of fashion and, and the aesthetic being incredibly vivid within this group of people. Um, but as well, I think it's very easy to then lump in the kind of lyrical stuff in with that sense of being part of like an emo aesthetic, like pulling on certain emotional strings in order to fit within a picture. But there's a point in that film where I can't remember who it is, maybe his manager, who was just like, he's being entirely sincere when he he's completely real when he's doing these lyrics and performing like this, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, because so much of what he does, it seems performative, mm. especially with his like super, he was so active on social media and especially like being an artist that is that emotional and that, um, you know, sincere about what they're doing, being on Instagram live and all those kinds of things where it's like, you know, you, it's less about glorifying something and just about being transparent. It's like, Mm. Oh, I'm like really sad today. And like popping pills on, on Instagram live and be like, yeah, like my drug addiction is extremely real right um and like the reasons that i'm addicted to these drugs is is like x y and z and i think that's really interesting um and like the total sincerity is is really attractive like i said earlier um and and that documentary kind of that documentary is probably a better introduction to low peep than this record and i think that I chose this record because it was the first thing that I heard, but I think his whole discography is is absolutely phenomenal. It was one of the artists that I never, ever will have to skip a track from. Wow. It, it is really phenomenal. And I have a couple people that I know that feel the same way. Um, being Mari, uh, the person that performs under Maurice, as well as my friend Theodore Kale Schaefer, uh, who's like an experimental ambient kind of artist here in the U.S., we all of us will talk about how it's just like such phenomenal music uh even though it there it does seem so surface level it is very genuine yeah absolutely it's so i mean we i I keep saying this we were talking before the uh the great crash about the fact that you know pop punk and that kind of aesthetic does get disregarded as kind of uncool and not worthy of really genuine appraisal 
And I, I guess this kind of falls under the same bracket of just being like, if it's that sincere and that on show and that overt, then there's something stupid about it, you know, which is not right. the case, right? Yeah, you must be so stupid to put, you know, wear your heart on your sleeve and, and put all your emotions on the table. Mm. And I think there's a lot of people, I mean, the pop punk thing is like very uncool, especially right now. Um, I'm sure it'll have another resurgence and people will think it's kind of okay again. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't know. It's the same thing. It's it's the way I feel about, um, I'm very into having uh, conversations with people on Twitter. I re very much love social media also. <laughs> and... But I think I, I have so many conversations with people. I'll say something on the internet that's, you know, I guess, controversial within like the experimental music community or something, and not controversial in you know any kind of you know actual offense that I'm you know or people could take to it. But it's just I don't know people who have like who subscribe to like the Cajun like kind of music shouldn't have emotion. My music doesn't have emotion, <laughs> and it's like come on, right. like. Yeah, it's like, really, one, because that kind of has already been explored, and it was explored, you know, 80 years ago at this point. Um, but also, you know, it's, I don't think anybody should deem something as, you know, unintelligent, just because there is like a shred or more of emotion involved in the creation of it. Uh -huh. And I think, I think if all, you know, art, music, whatever was void of emotion and it was completely this weird neutral like i don't even know i don't i don't really know how it would develop without it right so i think this these hyper like emotive artists kind of don't set the bar but they kind of like whatever the glass ceiling is at the point i think like they create that yes so yeah. the next person can go through it and if you don't want to you know penetrate that ceiling like you don't have to but like knowing where where things are i guess it like kind of sets this like parameter and like kind of builds i don't know i it just kind of creates the layout for other people and i don't think with like if we didn't have people like this then people who do create very neutral non-emotive music would not really have any legs to stand on because because they wouldn't be <laughs> rebelling against anything <laughs> so that's true yeah um, that's yeah. such a great point. I think um, I was watching a documentary recently on John Coltrane where Carlos Santana talks about people listening to Love Supreme and just like crying and not being able to kind of mentally process what's going on. He's like, your body's doing something that your mind doesn't want to do. I think those um, experiences where your body kind of overrides any sort of intellectual affection are so important important and valid as well i think that's something that seems to occasionally get overwritten is that if you have some kind of uh, bodily reaction to a piece of music like that's that's enough like it doesn't need to be rationally justified afterwards and it's not kind of like a i mean that's kind of where i guess the thing guilty pleasure comes from right it's when people feel like there's not enough substantial rationale behind liking the music to justify the tingling down the spine that they get when they listen to something or i don't know but like you i'm happy that there are people who are willing to sort of pursue that as an avenue of doing music rather than um purely speaking to some kind of intellectual understanding right yeah i think you know there's 
especially you know in a lot of art and, and experimental music communities it's there's this hierarchy that kind of gets you know you go into it and you're like oh well, these are the people that you know i'm i'm on on the level quote unquote with and these are the people that i want to be like and then these are the people that are like the end goal mm. and I should follow these steps and like as I go up these steps like I should be listening to these people and and kind of like I want to get to this point but you forget that you're your own person and you also have you're not like a machine right you, you don't need to like constantly upgrade yourself right. to get to this point <laughs> that you're you know you're like intellectually like superior to the people below you but like you're still striving for this end goal it's like well you can kind of deviate like not vertically but you can like also travel horizontally to right. <laughs> to you know explore uh emotions and not just intellect like going up and down um you can kind of veer one way or the other without you know you should be able to do it without fear of being whatever ostracized or whatever but yeah yeah, no, it is really interesting. Like, you forget that you're an animal, and, like, you're not really better than anything else. Right. So <laughs> the tingling down your spine should, you know, that should be a good thing. But for some reason, it's it's not always viewed that way. Golf Boy Club. That feels like a really awesome place to wrap things up. Claire, thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk through your records sometimes more than once. Um, greatly appreciate it. <laughs> of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah.